Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to study it. I thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country to do that. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to what you have to say, that you would help us to contend for our faith, not just offensively, but defensively, Lord. Uh, Help us to have answers for those who ask us for the reason for our hope. And Lord, help us to uh, be wary of those who would come in to deceive us and pull us off the path that you have for us. Pray that you bless this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to start in Jude. Uh, the last time I was up here, we did verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to do a quick recap of that. Jude was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was probably the second or third son. Uh, James would, would have been the oldest after Jesus. He calls himself a brother of James in verse 1. Uh, he never calls himself an apostle, though he probably was one. Uh, he considers himself just a servant, a doulos. And that would be the, the servant by choice. He, in his book, talks in triads or groups of three. He will mention, for instance, in verse 1, to those who are called, sanctified by the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied unto you. And then he continues, and again, there's only 25 verses in this book, but he continues to speak in triads. And he probably does that, he's a Hebrew, and they have a number system, and it's very symbolic to them. Usually three is the number of life, but I'm not sure his purpose in doing that other than to make it easier to read. It gives it form. It gives it, uh, makes it easier to read. So his whole book, its original purpose up until he got to verse three was I'm going to write to them about the salvation that we share, the common faith that we have. If it's in King James version, it says our common salvation. Now, he stops there because he looks at what's going on at the time. The book of Second Peter was written before Jude, and in it, Peter says, look, you want to beware, these false teachers are coming up. And he, Second Peter lists all these descriptions of what a false teacher is going to be like. But Peter lists it as if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. When Jude is written, it's written in the present tense, and he says, look, those false teachers that Peter was talking about, they're here. I want you to beware of them. So if you read first, or I'm sorry, second Peter and Jude, you'll find that there's a lot of similarities between the two. So the last thing we looked at was verses five through seven. And in it were three examples that God knows how to judge the ungodly because he was worried about all these false teachers coming into the church. It says certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. And so he talks about them, and he says, look, they're in the church, they're here, but beware of them, but let me remind you that God knows how to judge the ungodly. So verses 5 through 7, he talks about those who are part or who live in unbelief and how God judged them in the past. He does that to remind them that God is going to judge these people in the future. Yes, they're here. You can't necessarily do anything about it, but beware of them and let others know they're there because there's always going to be people who are going to be 
among us who maybe are not actually Christians. Statistically, in every church, there's at least one. That doesn't mean there is in this church, but it's possible. Now, he goes from verse 7 into verse 8, and verse 8 says this. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, the dreams of these false teachers, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, he begins by calling them dreamers. And I mentioned this last time. We, we sort of got into verse 8 a little bit. But the implication is this. There's two possibilities. One is he's talking about the fact that they're kind of out of touch with reality. They think they're in charge. They're, they think they're doing what God's will is. But they're not really filled with the Spirit. They're just doing their own thing. The other possibility is they say God is communicating with them through his dreams, through their dreams. Now, this happened back in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament, and sure enough, it still happens today. In the past, I believe it was Oral Roberts who said, God said he's going to kill me if I don't get $7 million. More recently, within the last year, the evangelist named Jesse Duplantis told his congregation that God wanted him to trust him for a $7 million jet. That was his dream. Besides the fact he already has three other jets, he talked to his congregation and said, this is what God wants me to do. If you'd like to be a part of that, feel free to donate. So it happens today. Now, I don't think God is going to tell anybody to do that whatsoever. That's not usually how God works. God usually sees the need that we see. We pray for it in faith. And if it's in line with God's will, then it happens. Not necessarily a, I'm sorry, I said $7 million jet, probably. It's a $54 million jet that he was asking his congregation for, or God wanted him to trust him for. But that's kind of what I believe is talking about. There's people who say, oh, God told me to do this. I remember when I was in junior high, and there was the man in Waco, Texas, David Koresh, and he had dreams, and he got this cult following behind him. And then there was Jim Jones, who got his following behind him. And Jim Jones... I believe it was, I forget who it was. It might have been Billy Graham or somebody else. I'm not not disparaging Billy Graham at all. Said that Jim Jones was the next next major evangelist. You know, he was a charismatic guy. And a lot of people were duped by him. But he was really a false teacher. He led people down to, I think it was French Guiana or something like that in South America. And 900 people or so drank the Kool-Aid, and that's where we get the phrase from, and died. And he was someone who seemed like he was an active part of the church. He seemed like he was a great guy. I mean, everybody thought, this guy's the next big thing. He's going to bring in the kingdom. All these things are going to happen. But he was a deceiver. And that's why it's so important for us to contend for the faith, because there's so many people out there who they seem like they're right on track. They seem like Well, they're following God, but we're going to find out that they have a lot of good works, but we already know that good works don't get you to heaven. It's the faith that makes you do the good works. Now, this verse, verse 8, contains the next triad. It says they pollute their bodies or they defile their flesh in some versions. And what it's doing is referring to the previous verse 
where it talks about, it's talking about sexual sins of some sort because that's what's talked about in verse 7 in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. But in this sense, it's more general. And a lot of false teachers, not all of them, end up having a harem like David Koresh did or maybe fall into some sort of uh, immorality. I forget. Someone was with the just different people. You find out they cheat. There's some big evangelist, and all of a sudden, uh, they have their fall from grace, so to speak. Now, the second thing is it says they reject authority. Now, we know in Romans 13, from Romans 13, that all authority comes from God. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter that Pastor Bill's in charge of this church, that I'm in charge of my area at work, whether you're in charge of a company or you're in charge of just your family, God's placed you in authority or the governor or the mayor or president or how high or low you want to go. That person's in some sort of authority and they've been placed there by God. Obviously, we know we don't agree with everybody placed in authority, but that doesn't mean we don't respect the position. And our culture today, and we saw it especially with the last election, actually the last 12 years really, because it came from both sides, Republican, Democrat, liberal, whichever side, everybody bashed on each other about something. People bashed on Trump. People bashed on Obama. Are they good people? No. But I'm not either. Nobody is. But... We are in a culture now that encourages us to reject authority because we don't like that person. Or we don't like what they stand for. And that's not right either. We kind of start picking and choosing what we want to do. Well, God says to reject authority, or God says to accept the authority, but I don't really want to do that. I don't really like this person. I don't think they stand for what God says. I don't think God would really want me to do that in this circumstance. So they kind of pick and choose. Some people call it a salad bar religion. My stepfather-in-law loves to go to Sizzler. And as much as he loves his steak at Sizzler, he loves the salad bar. And he always gets the salad bar. And he goes and he picks and chooses what he wants. I don't personally like Sizzler. But, or even Soup Plantation. That's even a better example. I like Soup Plantation. <laughs> Go to Soup Plantation and they have all the healthy stuff to start with, which I skip most of. And I'll get the little Chinese chicken salad. And I'll skip everything else. And once I eat that, it's the pizza it's the chocolate pudding. It's, the, it's the, you know, if you get the soup bowl, you can put the brownie on the bottom of it, and then the ice cream, and then the chocolate syrup, and then the sprinkles, and that ends up where most of my meal is at Soup Plantation. Or you can get the, the milk and just add the chocolate syrup. You make your own chocolate milk. There's, it's supposed to be a healthy place, but it doesn't end up that way for me. But that's what people do. They, it's a salad bar religion. It's, hey, I'm going to go in here and, Ah, oh, this is all the healthy, good stuff I could have, but you know what? I really don't want that. I'd much rather have this stuff. It's not as convicting. You know, this is the good stuff. This is, it's almost like the healthy stuff is the stuff that really convicts you. It's supposed to make you better or grow in your faith. And not that this stuff over here is bad, because there's nothing wrong with having the ice cream and, and talking about the love of God and all these other things. It's good, but you need everything. You can't pick and choose what you want out of God's word. It's the whole thing. And these teachers do that. Oh, you don't need that. I, don't, I reject that. They reject what they don't like in scripture. They reject the authority of the government. Just authority in general. And you can 
look back in the book of Judges, and it says that when this happened in chapter 21, Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And that's really the essence of it. We start doing what's right in our own eyes, what we choose, what we like. Now, the third thing in this verse is the third of the triad is speak evil of dignitaries or some versions say heap abuse on celestial beings. There are two opinions on this. One is that it refers to the apostles of the leaders in the church. The others is it refers to glories, which is what the strict translation is. And that's angels, which actually seems like the more accurate translation. Now, I don't know exactly how you insult an angelic being per se, but that's what the translation says. In fact, the only example I can really think of is when uh, nobody really insults good angels. Everybody likes the good angels in scripture, Michael, Gabriel, the two legitimate ones I can think of named. But there is one angel in scripture that we all make fun of, that we all ridicule at one time or another, and that is Satan. He's a fallen angel, but he's an angel. And when you get into verse 9, you're going to see that not even Michael the archangel, who had more authority at that time than Satan did, even bothered to revile or rail against him or insult Satan in any way, because what did he do? In verse 9, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So we don't really have the authority to challenge Satan or start. I've seen several evangelists on TV do that. I challenge Satan, and he's going to do this, and he's going to be under my boot. And and that's stupid. It, It doesn't make sense to do that. And admittedly, I've done it in the past. But uh, Satan was created the cherub of God. He was above every angel. He, he was anointed. He was in God's presence. He was the worship leader in heaven. And even though he fell, we're not supposed to ridicule him. I mean, if anything, we can pity him because he's made a poor decision. But... Uh, we're in no place to talk because we're fallen beings as well. Now, verse 9, as we've been speaking about, but even Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this story is mentioned in an apocryphal Jewish book called The Assumption of Moses. Now, Jude is not saying this book is legitimate, but what he is doing is pulling out a true story in an otherwise uninspired book. And he does this at least twice in Jude, in in his letter. And the significant thing about this that I find interesting is that the book of Jude itself speaks of identifying false teachers and falsehoods that creep into the church and noting those things that are true at the same time. And what does Jude do? But two of his examples that he pulls out, he pulls the truth out of uninspired works. Now, you can find the works of Confucius and there's other religious leaders around the globe. Is their religion false as a whole? Yes, it is. But they have bits of truth sprinkled into it, which is what makes it so tantalizing to people because there are truth mixed in with it. And what's more tantalizing than knowing the truth? But... Jude picks the true things out. Now, as Pastor Bill has said in the past, all truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. Even Caiaphas, who was an unbelieving Jewish priest, was used by God to prophesy truth concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Now, regarding the body of Moses, we see the last of it, his physical body, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 34. And this is what it says. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the grave to this day. So the only other time we see Moses after this, legitimately that we know of, is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that is his resurrected body. There are theories that he is one of the two prophets in the end times. It seems like a valid theory, but we don't know for sure because it doesn't mention him by name. So it doesn't say specifically why they were arguing about the body of Moses, but here's what some scholars have to say. One is, the devil wanted to use Moses' body as an object of worship to lead Israel astray into idolatry. Well, we already know that the law was used as an idol just for the Jews. And it seems reasonable, because Moses was who they revered the most, that it's a possibility. The second reason was Satan wanted to desecrate the body of Moses and claimed a right to it because Moses had murdered an Egyptian. I'm not sure where that one comes from. It could come from the assumption of Moses as well. Um, there's only fragments of that book that actually survive, so it's kind of hard to tell what exactly the whole thing says. The third reason is that the devil anticipated a purpose God had for Moses' body, and the devil tried to defeat the plan. This is possible as well, because the devil's always trying to defeat God's plan, even though God knows ahead of time what he's going to do, so God always has a plan out of it. So... Those are the three reasons. Which reason it is, I don't have any idea. They're all interesting to think about and ponder, but they don't really have a bearing on our faith. It's just kind of fun things to think about. But the main point that Jude is bringing up is not why Michael was disputing the devil, but how he disputed with the devil. Because the manner of Michael's fight is actually a model for our own spiritual warfare. Because first we see Michael was in a battle, and we are always in a battle. Ephesians 6 shows we're always in a constant struggle with not just the physical world, but the spiritual world's really what we're fighting against. The, the physical problems, the physical trials that we have are all a result of what's going on in the spirit world. That's why it says at the end of chapter 6, or I think it's verse 10. I can't remember exactly. Next. I think it's 6, 10 to 16 or something like that. At the end of talking about all the armor that we're supposed to put on, and that's our roles, putting on the armor, it says that we're supposed to pray. And it lists that because that is our offensive weapon along with the word. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our part in the battle. Because if we do these those things, that is how we rebuke the devil. We say, Lord, we say, the Lord rebuke you. We don't have any power. I was reading Chuck Smith on Jude, and he's all, I don't know why people say they want to face the devil. He's all, I don't want to face the devil. He's all, I want the devil on the opposite side of Jesus. I want Jesus in between me and the devil. I don't want to face him at all. He's all, I don't know why people say that. He's all, he's a lot stronger than I am. But, interesting, you don't want to face the devil. He's stronger and smarter than all of us put together. He's been around a while, and he's an expert at observing human behavior. He knows exactly what we're susceptible to, what we're capable of, and he knows how to exploit those. So I don't want to face him. Now, 
It is significant that Michael didn't bring up against him a reviling accusation or an insulting accusation. Because Michael didn't mock or accuse the devil. And I already mentioned we're not supposed to do that. Because God himself hasn't called us to judge the devil, to condemn the devil, or to mock him or accuse him, but to battle against him in the name of the Lord. Because we don't defeat him in our own power. But what we can do... is take the principle that Michael has given us and not do that to our fellow humans who we're trying to draw into the kingdom. Because we don't draw people into the kingdom by being contentious or argumentative with people. Now, I believe you can argue legitimately with people, but when I say argue, I don't mean you have a screaming match with each other about who's right and different facts that may or may not be right. When you watch debates, there are reasoned arguments that people give each other. That is what we're supposed to do. Reason debates with each other, talk to each other, have a dialogue. And Michael shows us that we can do that without being contentious because Michael took all the onus off himself and said, the Lord rebuke you, it's not me. And technically, according to some Jewish sources, Satan's position was actually above that of Michael's originally. Even though Michael was the archangel, some people consider seraphim and cherubim higher in the hierarchy than Michael was. So if that's the case, then Michael, even though Satan was a fallen being, was still showing respect to the position that Satan had. And we are still to show respect to the position everybody in government has, but as well as our fellow human beings because it's God's command. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, Jude is designed as a book to help identify and rebuke false teachers. Many people equate that as the job of the pastor or the elders or any other leadership in the church. But a minister of Jesus Christ is more than just the pastor. It is everyone who is a part of the body of Christ. I had someone at my work, uh, when he'd heard I'd gone on a trip to Cambodia, he said, Eric, I knew you were a Christian. I didn't know you were a minister. I said, well, if you're a Christian, you're a minister. I said, every Christian is a minister because they minister or they serve others in the name of Jesus because that's what a minister is. And he's like, oh, I didn't know that. And he, was, he was very fascinated by it. And I had a good conversation with him about it. But we're all ministers. Pastor Bill's a minister. He's just ministering as a pastor. I may be ministering as an elder or some other function God has given me, but we're all ministering in some way. So it is the job of everyone as ministers of Christ to do these things. Um, a lot of times, like I said, you, people want to separate it. Well, that's not my job. That's the pastor's job. No, it's everybody's job. If you look at Ephesians 4, and I'm going to read it to you, verses, not the whole verse, chapter, verses 11 to 15. It says... I was there. I lost my place. And he gave himself, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, there's ministry, work of the ministry, ministers, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and cared about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men 
and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So here's the parts. Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now he lists those first, and they are above as far as teaching others, but not above as in better. But he gave them to equip his people for the works of service. Works of service is how it says it in the NIV, but it's ministry. Works of service is ministry so that the body may be built up until we reach unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So pastors, teachers, all these people are designed to help the body become mature. And when the body is mature, according to verse 14, the body will no longer be infants. They will not be tossed back to and fro by the waves or different doctrine that's everywhere. So you'd be able to identify what's false. Now, my three-year-old... Well, maybe not so much. When they're really young, my kids believe whatever I say. <laughs> the older ones now know better. So when I say something, they go, really? Dad? <laughs> That's what they say. The, the younger one still does things. It believes me somewhat. Um, I'm really sarcastic at home. And they picked it up well. And so they dish it right back to me a lot of times now. But uh, I used to have them say, uh, before they knew I was kidding, when they asked me for something, they'd have to say, please, my Lord, you are most wise. <laughs> and they said it for a while. And then they realized that everybody else was asking, why are you saying that? And then they asked, and I was like, well, no, I, just, I was just playing with you. <laughs> but they all said it for a while. Uh, the youngest one hasn't yet. But uh, when you become old enough, when you become mature, you're not swept away by those little things. And it's easy, again, to trick children, and it's easy to trick people who are young in their faith. But the role of the pastors and teachers and all these uh, people in the church is to equip you so that you're not that way. And when you're that way, you're going to be able to see, again, the false doctrine that sweeps about, and especially now. Now is the time... It seems more prevalent now than ever. Uh, it says in Second Timothy that there's going to be people in the end times who are looking for people to itch their ears, to tell them something good, tell them something fuzzy, nothing convicting. You know, it's the salad bar religion again. They don't want to hear those things. Verse 10. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So, it says here, they slander whatever they do not understand. So essentially, they're self-declared experts. You've heard the phrase, those who think they know everything are very annoying to us who do. That's who they are, essentially. They think they know things that they don't. Now... I'm not knocking anybody when I say this, but when people watch sports, 
especially people who've never played sports or professional football or baseball. Now, I've known several people who have played sports in high school and college level and even one who was going to go pro at a point. And so when he sees things in baseball, I accept his word for it. I'm good with that. But when someone who's never played baseball goes, oh, why did the coach call that? Why did he do that? I'm like, you don't even play. Your opinion doesn't matter. And I have someone at work who does that all the time in the break room. Never played sports in his life, but he sure knows a lot more than those football coaches do. And that's what these false teachers are. They don't know anything. They profess to know the word. They profess to have knowledge. They profess to be uh, connected to God on a spiritual level, but they don't know anything. And, you know, they, they look godly because they're doing things, because they're serving, for lack of a better word, in the church, but they're not actually doing anything fruitful. The second thing that we learn about them is that they do know something. They know their animal instinct, and that's that animal instinct that's going to destroy them. Now, it says in the New King James Version, this verse, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Now, I looked up the word naturally, and in the Greek here, it's naturally or instinct is the word physikos, and it means the base animal instinct. And just to make sure I understood what instinct was, I looked it up in the dictionary. Instinct is an inherent behavior, a fixed pattern that is unlearned. It is something that you are born with. You, it, it's always there. And they said the most common animal instinct is to mate and to propagate. And you can watch Animal Planet and see that's true. But we learn from 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 that there are three types of people. There are spiritual people. These are the people who actually have the Spirit of God and they're receptive to the things of God and they're moving forward in their faith. Doesn't mean they're not stumbling. Doesn't mean they're not tripping up because we all do, but they're moving forward. The second man that it mentions is the natural man. This person doesn't have the spirit of God at all. So they follow their base animal instincts. They don't accept spiritual things. They're unsaved. They're not Christians. And then the third person mentioned is the carnal man, someone who has the spirit of God but lives for the world and follows his natural fleshly instincts instead of the spirit of God. Now, they know what God commands, but they choose to do what they feel instead. Now, the false teacher is obviously the natural man. There may be teachers who are in error and fall into error. They may be classified as carnal men, but that's not who Jude is talking about. He's talking about the natural man who does not understand the things of God. Now, Jude talks about this instinct destroying these false teachers. Now, I think in the proper setting, instinct can be good. I was listening to uh, Dave Ramsey, and he, he, he discusses deals that he makes with his wife, and his wife gets like these gut feelings. He says, she's a southern bale, and she just says, I just don't feel good about this. And so he takes her word for it, and a lot of times she's right, and so he's learned to trust her gut. So that's be a good gut instinct that's good. But... Consider this example, and this is prominent because I see it in cartoons all the time, but whenever a deer looks into headlights, what's its first reaction? Its instinct is to freeze. And I, I, 
I didn't know why that was, so again, I had to look that up too. I look a lot of things up so I can learn. But it's dark outside, so their pupils are fully dilated. And when they get that flash of light, and this is actually with everybody, technically, we just don't freeze on the road usually. But <laughs> usually. Um, they freeze, and they don't want to take another step because they don't want to get hurt. And that's why they get hit by the car. So what happens is that instinct is actually deadly for them. Uh, they just don't realize it. Now, the instinct of the false teachers is, now obviously they're not good, and sorry to compare them to Bambi, but these false teachers are going to be destroyed by their own instincts. Um, they're going to be blinded by the light eventually and freeze, and they're going to be destroyed because everybody's going to see them for who they are. And that's just on earth. They're eventually going to be destroyed by the brightness of Jesus coming, and then they're going to face judgment. Now, again, in the deer's case, the instinct is for its protection, but it ends up destroying it. In the false teacher's case, the end result of living for these instincts adds up to hell. Now, verse 11. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. This is the next triad. Notice again three. So in verses 6 through 8, Jude brought up three examples from the Old Testament about how God knows how to judge the ungodly, showing that false teachers are not going to escape their judgment. And this is the sixth triad. And this is the three examples we have from the Old Testament about the attributes of these false teachers. Now you're going to find that we've talked about some of them already. And mainly it's because these are the most prominent uh, characteristics. So the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? So we're going to, I'm going to read Genesis 4, 3 through 9 for you. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do right, will it not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? So we see in Genesis 3.21, previous to this, that God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal. Many see this as the beginning of the institution of a regular blood sacrifice, or sacrificing of an animal to cover sin, which is possible. Uh, we're told in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And since we see in chapter 4 what appears to be a regular event of, the sacrifice, of a sacrifice being received, it seems reasonable that God did institute something like that, though it doesn't say it specifically. But it seems a reasonable inference. So if this is the case, we could reason that Cain, instead of coming to God on God's terms, came to God on his own terms with the fruits of his own labor. Thus, Cain's offering was rejected not because he did not trust 
was rejected because he did not trust or have faith in God's prescribed manner that he laid out. Um, according to Hebrews 11.4, Abel's offering was brought by faith and Cain's was not. So Cain brought fruit, vegetables, laid them on the altar. Abel brought a lamb from the flock. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't say that the offering had to be a lamb. It doesn't say it anywhere whatsoever. So the, another possibility is simply that Cain's vegetables would have been okay, but they were brought without faith because the Hebrews 11.4 says about a sacrifice, it just wasn't done in faith. I prefer to lean towards the first one. I don't know for sure. Um, but we're also told in 1 John 3.12 that Cain murdered his brother because Abel's works were righteous while Cain's were wicked. So regardless of which one it was, Cain's was a wicked sacrifice, which means it was of his own self-effort, and Abel's was by faith alone. So Jude essentially says that Cain, or the way of Cain, is the way of unbelief and empty religion. And that empty religion can lead to jealousy and the persecution of the truly godly people, just as Cain was jealous of Abel because God accepted his offering and then killed him. And a lot of people have said, and it's, it's likely true, that empty religion is a whole lot worse than being an atheist. Because if you're in a religion and you're just doing it for just because, tradition, you feel good about yourself because, well, I'm doing this. I'm okay. I'm, I'm following this prescribed manner. And there's a lot of people who do that in every denomination who are just there because they've always done it. Whereas an atheist, I don't know, he's, he's already against it. He's not comfortable where he is. He already knows he's missing something. Whereas a lot of people stuck in their tradition think, well, this is good. I like this. And there's nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. As long as you know why you're doing what you're doing. There's, uh, we practice communion, which has been a tradition since before Jesus died now. So 2,000 years. And some people take it just as a matter of religion, but we try to make sure when we do it here, as you all know, we explain it. Why are we doing this? It's not just eat this, take the, drink this, you're done. Uh, be blessed, be holy, bye-bye. It's not, it's not that. We, we explain what we're doing, why it's, why it's significant. The way of Cain. Again, empty religion. It's Cain seeking his own way to God instead of following the way God ordained. You can also see that Cain's way is also apathetic because he had no love for his brother. And there's inference from the Hebrew that they were possibly twins. So if he didn't just kill a brother, he killed his twin brother. The error of Balaam. I'm not going to read all of Balaam because it's chapters 22 to 25 and chapter 31 of Numbers, so I'm going to summarize for you. Uh, during the time of the Exodus... 
Israel advanced to the land of Moab after defeating the Amorites. The Israelites came near, and King Balak of Moab was nervous. He didn't want that they were there. He already heard who they had destroyed. He said, okay, I got to find a way to defeat them. And so what he did is he sent off for Balaam. And Balaam said, no, 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 I can't do it. He had sent them away. So what he did was Balak sent another delegation that was even more prestigious, even bigger, and offered him more money. And so even though God had told him not to go, he decided to go anyway. And even when a talking donkey told him he was being a fool, he still continued. Now, Balaam knew he was doing wrong. He knew he shouldn't have gone. And yet he still tried to curse Israel from a mountaintop. I believe it was four different times. And each time he tried to curse him, he blessed Israel instead. And so Balak said, I think he said, I should basically in my vernacular kill you myself because you haven't helped me at all. You've blessed people that I need cursed. And he says, I can't help it. I'm just doing what God said. I opened my mouth and what the blessing came out. So he said, but I'll tell you what I can do. So what he did is he told Balak to send all the pretty young girls of Moab into the camp of the Israelites so that they could tempt the young men into idolatry because that's how you worshiped in Moab. Sexuality was part of the worship of their gods. So what Balaam was able to do was to get Israel cursed by their own hand because he could not do it himself. And he did it for a very good chunk of money. I don't know what it was specifically, because it doesn't say. But he was well rewarded until he was killed later, five chapters later. So he didn't get to enjoy it for long. But his curse, because of his suggestion on Israel, caused 24,000 people in Israel to die. He brought the plague of judgment on Israel. So the error of Balaam was deliberately leading others into sin for money. Someone else put it this way. They said he was willing to merchandise his gifts in ministry just for the making of money. He was using the spiritual to gain the material. And the men that Judah's warning about are going to do the same things. And again, I could bring up Jesse Duplantis among many other people. Uh, Joel Osteen, several people, Creflo Dollar, who are using the spiritual to gain the material, to gain the monetary. Now, I also want to clarify, though, that just because someone is making money doesn't mean... They're a false teacher. I think the laborer is worthy of his wages, and anybody who is a pastor or a teacher and earns his living this way definitely should because you don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. So even if a pastor or teacher is writing books, they should make money off that. There's nothing wrong with that. They're making a living. They're supporting their family. They're providing because whoever doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So they should be doing that. But it's when you're taking advantage of the flock, when you're taking advantage of people for gain, that's the error of Balaam. Now, the rebellion of Korah, 
Korah's story is found in Numbers 16. Now, he was a prominent man in Israel. He was a Levite. And one day, his, his story is found. He's mentioned in more than just chapter 16 of Numbers, but he's, it's, this is where we're getting this from. He basically goes to Moses and says, you know, you're doing too much. You're thinking that you're in charge and you and Aaron are doing all these things and you need to let us take some of that because, you know, we're just as much children of Israel as you are. And Moses immediately and Aaron dropped to the ground and prostrated themselves before Korah. Not because Korah was saying something correct, but because they feared God because they knew what Korah was saying. Korah was saying, I reject you as God's messenger, God should have picked me, is essentially what he's saying. And Moses is like, oh, you're fighting against God on that one. I'm on the ground. God may strike you with lightning. I'm going to get closest to the ground as possible. And so what Moses does is, he says, okay, if that's true, I'm fine with it. But let's make a test. Let's all get censors to um, bring before the altar. And God will choose who he has set up as a leader. So Korah and all the people who are with him do that, and they get censors. So they meet that morning, like at the OK Corral, and they're waiting. And all of a sudden, there's no gunfight. The ground opens up and swallows everybody in Korah's camp. And made for sure everybody knew that God placed Moses and Aaron in charge. And not only that... Fire came down from heaven and consumed every single person that supported him. God said, no, if I place somebody in charge, they're in charge. God made sure everybody knew. So Korah, his rebellion was a rejection of God's appointed leaders. When they spoke against Moses and Aaron, they were speaking against God. And when these people that Jude speaks about are rejecting the authority against, you know, whoever's established in God's churches, they're walking in that same rebellion. Now, I think there's some churches who are definitely led by false teachers. I don't know which ones they all are. I'm not interested in hunting them down. The only thing I'm interested in is making sure that the place that God has placed me is the place where I keep them out so that everybody here can grow. Now, I think there's a, a time and a place if people are boisterous enough that make themselves known, like those people I've already mentioned, then I can feel free to point them out. And just so no one thinks I'm being judgmental, Paul pointed people out who were false teachers by name. Alexander the coppersmith would be, would be one. Um, Phygelus and Hermogenes would be two more. And, there, he, he, and there's even more than that. I want to just clarify that God doesn't say don't judge. He says to judge righteously. And when you're pointing people out, it's got to be very obvious and following the guidelines that scripture gives us. But again, as Michael did, not doing it in a contentious manner, but doing it in a way that is respectful. Now, Verse 12 and 13. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. 
They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So we have two more triads in these two verses. So the first is, it talks about blemishes at the love feast. Now the love feasts were also called agape feast because the church in certain regions would get together and they would have these potlucks. And during the potluck, they would have a communion service. And what was happening in some cases was like in the church of Corinth, people were bringing their food and then eating the food that they brought. And then poor people were bringing their food or not bringing anything and then still starving at the love feast. Now, when it comes to this verse though, he's talking about these people who are coming in and just eating, not worried about that. They're not really part of the church. They're just eating there because they're filling up their flesh. Now it says blemishes. Some versions use the word spots. The Greek, some people believe can also be translated as hidden rocks. Now, if you've ever had pebbles accidentally hidden in your rice or accidentally bitten on a corn kernel that didn't pop and it can crack a tooth or it can chip a tooth. That's what these people are being compared to. Someone's at your love feast or at your agape feast and they're just there. They're like the people who can injure you just in the, even in that way. They're uh, also equated these hidden rocks to rocks that are right below the surface of the waves that the ships can't see. And so the ships go along and they get shipwrecked on those rocks. And just like that, uh, false teachers, when they're not rooted out, can shipwreck the faith of a lot of people. Now, they're also compared to shepherds. But these are shepherds who have no concern for the flock of God. Just like the hirelings that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10. They're shepherds. They don't care. They're there. They're playing a role. They're playing a part. But they're not fulfilling their obligation. They're also compared to clouds. Now, the one thing the meteorologists do is when they go, oh, there's cloud cover, it looks like it's going to rain, and then you get all excited for it, especially because it's here, and it smells like it's going to rain, and then it doesn't, because it never rains in Southern California. But these false teachers are like those clouds. The big puffy clouds make it look like it's going to rain, but really there's no substance to them. They lack content. They exist only for themselves. They don't bring life-giving rain. All they really do is block out the sun. And false teachers, like those clouds, they can block the S-O-N, the sun, from the people that need them, need him. Now it says, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead. They are fruitless. And as Pastor Bill was talking about last week, you're going to know them by their fruits. They're going to be like trees that take but don't give. Now I have several trees in my yard. And several of those trees are, they're all fruit trees. And about half of them actually produce fruit. The other half don't. And they've been planted for about five years. So technically I should uproot them. I'm lazy, I'm not going to. But... These people should be uprooted because that's what they are. They're uprooted. They're, they're taking from the church. They're taking from the body, but they're not giving back. It also characterizes them as wild waves of the sea. They're restless, full of busyness. But again, busyness doesn't equal productivity, as they'll tell me at work. But 
Busyness is not a mark of correctness. It's not a mark of, wow, this guy must really be doing something for the kingdom because he's always active. When Jude is giving this picture of wild waves of the sea, it's like the wild waves after a storm. When a big storm has come and you look at the shore and you see all the scum and the driftwood and the seaweed, that's what he's equating them to. They're the scum on the shoreline, all the debris, the junk that washes up. And then it says, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And I believe this talks about literal stars because literal stars don't wander. They actually stay right where they are. But many times in scripture, the stars are references to angels. Now, the fallen angels in scripture wandered from their original domain. They wandered from where their original abode was in heaven to come to earth. But these stars and these false teachers are destined for the blackness of darkness forever. And that is the lake of fire. Now, finishing up today, this morning with 14 and 15, it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And again, here Jude quotes from Enoch, and this is the second place he quotes from an apocryphal book. And again, he's pulling truth out of an otherwise uninspired book. Now, some people say that the book of Enoch actually was well-preserved up until the point uh, uh, right after the first century because apparently it had many other prophecies or spoke about the Messiah in great detail, and the Christians would use that. But the Jews apparently destroyed it because they didn't like how much the Christians were using it to talk about the Messiah. But there are some partial manuscripts that exist till today. And Jude, again, quoted from it just to quote that there is truth in it. Now, we don't need the book of Enoch for this truth. It's actually already throughout the current Bible that we have. But he pulls it because of the vivid description it portrays. Now, in closing, I looked up this morning. I just Googled it. I put false teachers around today because I wanted to see what came up. Because everybody has a different idea of what a false teacher is. And again, we've got guidelines in Jude and in other books of the Bible as to what they are. But I'm going to read you the top ten. I'm going to tell you that I agree with about five of these. The first one is Paul Crouch. The second one is Pat Robertson. The third one is Rick Warren. The fourth one is Chuck Smith. Came up on there. Now, I don't agree with that. I thought that was ironic, and I had to read why they put that, and it was... Not a good reason. Fifth was Benny Hinn. The sixth was Robert Schuller. The seventh was Oral Roberts, who I've already mentioned. James Swaggart. Joel Osteen, who I've already mentioned. And John Hagee. I don't agree with those. But there was another website that had hundreds of people's names on there, and I'd never even heard of most of them. The point, again, that I really want to push home is just to be contending and looking, and just because someone says someone's a false, and again, don't take, just because I say I believe someone's a false teacher, I don't expect you to take my word for it. I do expect that we all are diligent and contend to find out what the truth is and then to share that truth. And then if someone is teaching something that's an error, 
to find out if, just like when Paul and Aquila and Priscilla talked to Apollos in the book of Acts, Apollos knew only the baptism of John. But that's what he was preaching, and it wasn't necessarily wrong, but it wasn't complete. So he was technically in error in a sense. Well, they taught him a more perfect way. They showed him what the truth was. And that's what we're supposed to do. Be Aquila and Priscilla and direct people. If someone's in error, say, look, this is what you're saying, but it doesn't really align with scripture here. And that's what we want to do. And then if someone's willing to accept it, that's good. But we just want to be careful because some people we want to identify as, as false teachers to keep them out, to keep their influence out. And there's nothing worse than a bad influence. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, every day I pray that we would be contending for your faith, that we would be fighting for it. As the marathoner is struggling to get past the line, may we struggle in a good way to know your word and to know your truth. Not so we can become knowledgeable, but so that we can lift up others, so that we can keep others away from error, so we can help them to grow closer to you and have a more intimate relationship with you. Lord, may your word live in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.